welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook on sales and marketing alignment. In it, you'll discover how to identify your buyer personas, how to develop relationships with your buyers, and why implementing a sales playbook can encourage cross-functional collaboration. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod254. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and today I'm speaking to the founder and principal of Okapi, which is a company that helps organizations measure, monitor, and manage their on-site staff and efficiently collect and organize field data, surveys, and supporting documentation across multiple events, activities, locations, programs, and campaigns. So a little complicated, but we'll get into that. Um, He's also an author, speaker, trainer, a tech startup coach, and the founder of the Software Field Manual, where he shares wisdom and best practices for software companies and the humans that build them. He's got a lot of experience in product marketing and sales leadership and is based in St. Louis, Missouri, kind of right in the middle of the country. So we are so glad to have you here, G.V. Freeman. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. So I just shared the really high-level bio um, of yours. That's kind of what people could scrape maybe off LinkedIn. But I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Maybe talk a little bit about um, how you got started, how you got to where you are, um, or you know, passion for what you're doing right now. Whatever you think would be helpful for our listeners to get to know you. Yeah, absolutely. The high points for me is I grew up in a tiny little town in the middle of central Nebraska. Um, 700 people uh, were in the town that I grew up in. And from there, I kind of graduated to a town of 3,500. And from there, I went to, um, actually, I got an opportunity to be a foreign exchange student and kind of experience the world as a junior in high school. Then I came back and I, uh, I graduated from college with a degree in computer information systems. And I'm at, at heart, I'm a techie. So I'm a geek at heart. And over the course of the last 20 years, I've really kind of expanded that out into a number of different ways. And I, I kind of rode the web 2.0 boom and was able to really start at the ground level uh, with internet marketing. So I've been playing with technology for a long time. And then Uh, Really over the past five years, five or six years, uh, I found um, kind of my personal and self-care practice. Um, I walked Mm -hmm. into a yoga class in probably 2012. And it was, um, I bought a Groupon, I walked into a yoga class, and less than a year later, I was a certified yoga teacher, and I do a lot of mindfulness work. And now I have kind of smashed all of that stuff together. And I use all of this work between founders and helping them get uh, companies off the ground and also helping founders like realize what makes them happy and how to be happy while they're creating a company and doing uh, kind of vision, vision focused companies is really what my passion is. So uh, I still run a software startup. Um, I do startup coaching um, and I started this nonprofit to really help founders launch their companies in mind in a mindful way. That is awesome. I didn't realize maybe that we had so much in common. You have me beat. My hometown's about 3,000 people, and I thought that was small, so 700's got it beat. But um, I also studied computer information systems, and I think having having that focus, it's amazing when I talk to people who, who studied a similar thing, how it can go in so many different directions. Um, but uh, 
The thing that I love the most about what you do um, when I talked to you before, and you've got this on your website as well, is um, when you coach founders, you have an 80-20 rule. Can you explain the 80-20 rule that you use in coaching to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's not just founders. I think that um, I use it in my personal life. I recommend um, founders and CEOs and just employees, uh, managers use this uh, framework as well. And the 80-20 the rule uh, is actually called the Pareto principle. And, you know, we in the sales world might say, well, 80% of our revenue comes from 20% of our customers. That's how it might translate uh, to some of your listeners. What I say is spend 80% of your time building your business and 20% of your time on self-care. Because there are so many ways that if I'm taking care of myself, my business will grow, my employees will be happier, um, I will be more fulfilled as a human being, that if we can incorporate more self-care, and that's a really, really broad bucket, self-care, like it's physical and mental and emotional and spiritual, so it can include a lot of things, but I just encourage people to do their best to integrate those two things. We only have one life. A lot of people talk about work-life balance. And when I hear work-life balance, I I see like the, the flying Walindas walking across um, <laughs> Niagara Falls. And like there, he, he's got this big pole and he's just praying that he doesn't fall off. And I think like work and uh, my work life and my personal life are on either side of that. And if I get too far off, you know, catastrophe happens. And I don't believe we have two lives. We don't have a work life and a personal life. We have one life and therefore we need to integrate those as best as we can. So that's my approach when I'm coaching. It's my approach when I'm working with my employees and really anybody in life. I, I really love that because um, I've done some study, not nearly as much as you, um, on, on just mindfulness and different practices around, you know, gratitude practices um, or, or happiness um, work that, that people do. And, and that whole principle around you just have one life and, um, and you need to work to experience it in a way that both provides you satisfaction professionally as well as satisfaction personally is, is so incredibly important. So um, I figured since you have this principle and this approach that we would use that for the episode. So I want to spend about 80% of our time talking about more businessy things, more operational stuff, because you have a lot of knowledge and expertise there. But um, I do want to spend some time later taking a deep dive into some of those best practices around self-care because it is so incredibly important. Yeah, sounds great. All right. So um, this is a topic that I don't know if, if I've ever talked about this on the podcast before, but um, something you brought up when we spoke before is that you've lately been working on something you call sales first marketing automation. So could you tell our listeners what you mean by that and why you think it's so important that marketing automation has that kind of sales first focus? Yeah. And I would say that there's a lots of lots of types of marketing automation. If you have marketers on the podcast, they're going to say, oh, well, this is just content marketing. And in some mm-hmm. ways it is. And marketing is absolutely a part of this process. The, the reason why nobody else is talking about sales first marketing automation is uh, I think, to the best of my knowledge, it's a concept that I invented. It's a, it's a nomenclature that I invented because I've worked with so many companies over the years where marketing's doing their thing and sales is doing their thing and the twain shall never meet. And mm-hmm. you have salespeople saying, um, marketing's handing me crappy leads. 
<laughs> and you have marketing people saying, we're giving you all of these leads. We're writing you all of this content. We're creating all of these resources that sales never uses. And I think that they're all doing the best they can. In fact, that's kind of one of my, my life philosophies is we are all doing the best we can. I don't think that marketing, generally speaking, is trying to sabotage sales or vice versa. <laughs> um, it is, it's just kind of what happens. In fact, there's a, if I can remember it right, there's a, um, a research principle um, called motive attribution bias, where we think that what we're doing is like out of the best good and, you know, out of love and good. And the other person that we are working with is doing all of this out of like hate and spite. And then the interesting part about it is that when you switch that around, marketing is saying, we're doing this out of the, you know, the, the goodness of our hearts. We're doing great. And sales is the one that's sabotaging us. So it's natural that people think this way. Uh, but what sales first marketing automation is and does is it uses technology to build a bridge between the two departments. And at a very, very basic level, I say that marketing is in charge of uh, creative and of messaging and sales is in charge of you know who gets what and when so everybody is working together to create these content strategies and then sales gets to pull the trigger and say this customer this prospect needs this piece of content at this time marketing doesn't know that because they're not in the deal Sales does know that because they're talking to their customers every day. And what it does is it allows both of those and provides a framework for both departments to come together to create great content that can be used at the right place in the right time. I, I absolutely love that, GV. It's, it's so, there's so much in there. Um, and apologies for the background noise. We're going to try to remove that in post-production. My cat is doing her best to get into the room that I'm in. Um, <laughs> but uh, as you were talking, I was just thinking of how many times in working with clients, I've talked to salespeople because we come in usually on the sales side. And as you said, that, that motive attribution bias, it's so easy to blame but you're all working for the same organization and everybody wants to be successful. You know, I've, I've talked to people in marketing side on the marketing side and they'll say, you know, I, I don't want to generate leads that don't go anywhere. What's the point of that? You know, I don't want a bucket of leads that are not being worked. I don't want leads that are the wrong type that, that aren't going to generate business. Um, and it's frustrating to them to feel like I did a lot of work and it's, it's gone nowhere. You know, if I develop a, a presentation template or, or um, you know, a, a proposal template and it's not being used by the sales team, that's incredibly demoralizing. And then on the sales side, like you said, you know, you're giving me these leads and they're not qualified. What on earth are you doing? Um, or, you know, you, you develop these PowerPoint templates and they're not flexible and they don't match what I need with my customers. Um, so I, I'm not going to use them. Instead, I'm going to build my own. Now I have to do marketing's job. And there's, there's a lot of blame <laughs> that people are bringing into this. And if we can just kind of take that step back and think, first of all, probably everybody's trying to do a good job. Now, what can we do to break down those barriers and work together to effectively, you know, engage customers and um, get people interested and, and qualify leads? And, you know, uh, it, it, it's all it all has the same goal. 
And it's really funny and frustrating, but funny um, how so how easy it is to kind of get off track and then think people are trying to make it go off track. So I I use a couple of quotes in a presentation um, or uh, statistics. One of those is that 80% of bad leads, in quotes, that sales teams disqualify due to lack of budget or timing do go on to buy within 24 months. So a lot of times, you know, our salespeople, depending on our sales cycle, um, salespeople are, you know, after the sale, they're after the close. That's the way that their brains work. And if people are not closing immediately or within the designated sales cycle, they're like, well, that's a crappy lead. Why did you give me that lead? Well, 80% of those leads do go on to buy later. (laughs) And that's kind of where marketing needs to fall into place as well and say, uh, you know, I will help you try and work it. If it doesn't work, then kick it back to me and let me help you out. And then beyond that, the the next thing I would say is nurtured leads produce on average a 20% increase in sales opportunities. So if marketing does their part in the beginning and they pitch it over to sales and sales does their part, and then maybe they're not ready to close. And then we pitch it back over to marketing. There is still opportunity there. And I think that's one of the absolute fundamental concept concepts of sales first marketing automation is reimagining what the sales funnel, the sales and marketing funnel look like. So in mm-hmm. the, in the past, like marketing had their funnel and sales had their funnel. And then you you brought in content marketing, permission marketing was kind of the, the a very original term. It, it goes all the way back to 1999. Seth Godin was talking about permission marketing. And what he did is built one sales funnel and it had marketing at the top of the funnel and sales at the bottom of the funnel. Now, HubSpot today is kind of trying to do this thing with a flywheel. And I, I think that there is validity in that, but I would I would try and paint this picture for your listeners to think of a funnel. And instead of having marketing at the top and sales at the bottom, take the funnel and split it in half and have sales on the left and marketing on the right and a line that bounces back and forth between sales and marketing. So maybe marketing has it for a little bit and they pitch it over to sales. Sales has it for a little bit and then they pitch it back to marketing. But it's not like step one marketing, step two sales, it's going back and forth and figuring out how to use technology, specifically the marketing automation system and the CRM to come together to allow these two departments to do what they're really fantastic at, but using technology to allow people to to use the funnel in exactly the way that they need it. You know, one of the other things that I oftentimes will say is marketers focus on personas and mm-hmm. salespeople focus on people. And what we need is marketing to at least open their eyes enough to say, okay, I need to move past the persona in this situation and build content for people. The personas are great when you're at the top of the funnel, but they suck when you get to the bottom of the funnel. And salespeople know that and traditional only marketing people don't know that. Absolutely. And, you know, that whole concept of it's one process, that was revolutionary for people. And that was a while ago. And there are still organizations that are viewing it as two separate processes. But that whole idea of it bounces back and forth. What I always recommend to people is that you think about the buyer. And you think about when you're buying. It's not very often anymore that you would engage with a company and you don't know a whole lot 
and you reach out and you say, please have a salesperson talk to me. And then you exclusively listen to what the salesperson tells you. And then you make a decision about whether or not you're going to buy something. That actually was a buying model in the past. And, and it's just not the case anymore. And so you think about how you might um, go to somebody's website and look at the information they have. And then you're going to look elsewhere on the internet to compare different things, um, you know, different websites that'll compare that specific vendor to other um, similar ones. And then you might request a demo and that would give your information to the team. And then maybe a salesperson calls you and you'll have some conversations with them, but then you're going to go back and you'll want to download materials and you'll want to see other things and not have any interaction with sales. And if we do this ourselves, when we buy, why on earth do we think that our prospects are going to follow this straight, simple path that we try to put them on. They're people just like we are, and they have the same expectations we do in terms of what information do they want at different parts in that in that buyer journey? Um, what support do they want? Um, what engagement and follow-up do they want? And it's amazing how many organizations try to push prospects <laughs> on a journey that those prospects don't want to be on. Yeah, and it's like you're you're preventing sales. <laughs> and and that's the thing is, it's really hard. The, this concept is challenging for a lot of uh, high level leaders to get because they grew up with one mindset. When you have, when you're thinking of the person that's um, in charge of revenue for your organization, now you might have a director of marketing, a VP of marketing and a VP of sales. And those two people grew up and they were nurtured by people that were probably in their profession. So most people fall on one side or the other. Now, if we have a combined position like chief revenue officer, usually, again, they people are slanted one way or another. And what this is requiring companies to do is to think about both sides of the equation at the same time, to have two thoughts at the same time that say, how do we market to and how do we sell to our prospects at the same time in the way that they want to be sold. Absolutely. And, you know, that that mindset of we're, we're coming from different perspectives, um, we have different experiences, and, um, and, and we're not going to take the time to learn about each other. That's the death knell for your career. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really up to, you know, this isn't just that, oh, yeah, new people are going to come up and they're going to have this idea that everything blends together. And we're just going to throw out all those old people. Um, that's not at all the case. Instead, it's just about, about learning and growing. And, you know, back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, letting people do the stuff that they're best at. Um, what happens, and, and I'll say this because I have a lot more experience on the sales side, and you can tell me what you see on the marketing side of this, is when you have a lack of alignment between marketing and sales, when they're not using the same systems and technology together, you have sales trying to do marketing's job, and they're really not good at it. <laughs> and so I have seen salespeople who've literally tried to develop their own marketing materials because they didn't like the marketing materials that, that the, the team came up with. And um they might be really good salespeople, but man, their, their graphic design skills are not necessarily to the level of the marketing team um, or even the messaging. You know, they, they a lot of times don't necessarily know what the message is that might be most compelling to prospects. They think they know because of the prospects that they're actually engaging with, but they might not have the access to market research um, and other big picture perspectives that the marketing team might have. And so it's, it, it's, really just 
a waste of time and effort that work is being done twice. And the second time, not well (laughs) by people who never learned how to do it and shouldn't, and it's not their job, but because they feel like they're not getting what they need on the input side, they are redoing that work themselves. Uh, 100%. And I, so I hear this all the time and from marketing is Salespeople, stop creating this. Stop creating your own content. That's what we're here for. Oh, and by the way, stop screwing up our brand standards. Like that's that's how very traditional marketers think. You use the wrong mm-hmm. logo in the wrong orientation and the wrong, you know, color on this. Um, <laughs> that that's how the marketers approach it. And the salespeople are saying, "You guys don't understand what it's like to sell to my customers. You don't. You are not listening, and you don't hear the objections that I am hearing on my sales calls. And all the marketing material that you're putting out there doesn't address the real customer." that I'm talking to. Now, both people do have some stake in this game and they they are right in certain circumstances, but you're right. Salespeople are not usually graphic designers or copywriters and marketing people (laughs) are not closers. And that's why if like we're literally trying to meld two brains into one, and what happens is sales and marketing can get in a room and say, here are my, here are the common objections. Can we create a piece that addresses these common objections? And then marketing goes and does their job. They listen to sales and then they say, we're going to create a one sheeter or some, you know, we're going to do a webinar on common objections, but we're going to focus on the design of the slides and we're going to focus on some copywriting because you know, salespeople write lots of emails every day, but they are not copywriters by nature. And again, we just need to find who has the skills, let them do their job, but all be working to the same goal. There's another framework that I use a lot of times when I'm talking to companies is that if you divide the company by strategic at the top, tactical in the middle and operational at the bottom. The operational things are salespeople making a phone call, salespeople sending an email, marketing, designing a PowerPoint. Now we move up to the tactical level and that is we need to generate more sales from this customer segment. And to do that, marketing and sales have to come together at a tactical level. And we do that with the skills that we have and we do that with the technology that we have access to. And really at the strategic level, it's you know, it's C-suite coming together and saying, hey, marketing and sales, here are the strategic objectives that we have for this year or this quarter. Please go out and do that. But what happens is most people focus at the operational level because that's where their skill set is. And we don't mm-hmm. ever walk up and shake the hands of our department saying, how do we build a better mousetrap? Absolutely. I think that's that's such a simple framework, but it's it's so powerful. And like you said, there's a lot of this that is not systems oriented. There's a lot of it that's just, you know, we have a tool, um, for example, that we use called the problem opportunity matrix. And we, we work with our clients to build these out. And it just takes the features of your offering and and aligns them with the problems they solve for buyers such that you can um, message around solving problems instead of going in with a feature-oriented mindset. And that single tool is something that can bridge a gap between marketing and sales. Because if you can agree that, you know what, we have this feature and it's a great feature and yes, we, we know what it's called and we know all the little details about it, but what actually matters to buyers is this you know, um, or even here are the three different things that matter to buyers about this feature of our offering. 
that's a, a much more compelling and much more powerful message. And so if you can take the time to work together with sales and marketing, and sales is probably going to be providing a lot of this context um, to marketing because they they are having more conversations. They're out there in the market more. They're getting the objections and the questions and the concerns. Then if you agree on, okay, this is the content, this is the core tool that we're using, then marketing can do whatever they want with that information. And some of it is going to be specifically, you know, sales wants a deck, sales wants, you know, a a demo or a video or whatever, but then they can also take it in all those other directions and they might develop um, an infographic or they might develop, um, you you know, advertising. And there's so many other places that they can take it. And so it's just having that core that you can agree on and then each group does with it what they're best at doing with it (laughs) another example that i use is especially for features and i work with a lot of technical founders and they they build these products and they think that people buy features and sometimes Mm. people do buy features but Nine out of 10 times, people are buying value. They're buying hope Mm -hmm. that they are going to reduce pain uh, or make themselves happier. And what I say is those features are the things that go in the box. And you have all those features and then marketing figures out a a pretty box to put them in and a bow to put on top of it. So marketing is not ignoring the features. They are just packaging those features into a value proposition that they know customers will resonate with. And sales can learn a lot from marketing as well uh, if they choose to, uh, to take their cues because marketing usually has a lot more data. Marketing has data that says, I'm going to put up some social media ads or I'm going to use uh, pay-per-click ads and I'm going to test out a whole bunch of phrases mm-hmm. and ads and we're going to figure out what converts best on the marketing side. Well, that's a whole bunch of data that sales never gets and sales usually likes to say, well, I talk to these customers every day. I know exactly what they're looking for. And you know that's more bias. That is more bias that we as departments kind of build in because because it's our lived experience. We always bias towards our lived experience. Absolutely. And, you know, you might be in a region where a certain message is especially compelling or the kinds of prospects that you work on might have a specific um, orientation that that works for them. But overall, across the entire country or, um, you know, whatever region that you're selling into, that might not be the case. And there might even be, you know, what you're doing works fine. And you think that's the be all and end all, but there's something that would work better. And because you're unwilling to um, take that information from marketing, um, you're unwilling to to really see that level of growth that you'd be able to achieve even above the success that you're already getting. And, you know, it's, I, I do think a lot of it is you come in too late in a process and you don't understand the work that it took to get there because you can't have sales sit in on every meeting that marketing has, right? Every planning meeting that they have and every, um, every time that they're discussing how they're going to figure out the messaging that works and um, all of the operational meetings where they're reviewing the different ideas. But I do think figuring out when are we going to push information to the sales team and how much context are we going to give them behind it can be incredibly helpful. Because if you say, hey, guys, um, instead of just saying, here's the message, 
we know this works. It's 27% more effective than the other message to say, hey guys, you know, we tested these four different messages. Um, these are the two that had the best results. Um, I, you know, the other ones were fine too, but these ones had, you know, 37% higher effectiveness, whatever that is, giving them just that little tiny bit more context can be so incredibly powerful when it comes to just getting somebody to be willing to, um, to try something different. Because one thing about just human psychology that I think more marketers might need to be aware of within their own companies is the risk that's associated with doing something different. Um, and salespeople who have been achieving at least some level of success doing things the way they're comfortable doing them are much less likely to adopt any changes that you recommend, um, no matter how you know how much you talk them up or how much you you try to mandate that they do that. If if they have used certain language over and over and over again and they feel like it works for them, it's it's going to be hard to get them to change. And you have to do that work. You can't just you know throw them the message and say, hey, go for it, because they're not. And then you're just going to be frustrated. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with all of that, and I think that it's a it's a tricky balance to walk that, you know, the, the thought that mm -hmm. came up into my head is um, nobody likes to know how laws and sausages are made. Like we don't <laughs> want to see the process. We just want to see the output and you know, marketing shouldn't be telling sales how to, you know, schedule their sales cycle or to run their sales cycle. Sales shouldn't be telling marketing what brand standards are because that's all stuff that comes before. And, and it's, and it's, again, it's allowing people to do what they're really good at. Now I'll, I'll give you an example and this might help set up, this idea of sales first marketing automation. So let's throw a scenario out there that I'm a salesperson and I get a customer that calls me up and says, you know what? I really uh, am interested in your product. So we'll use a software product for instance. And we have our own development uh, shop in-house. So we're kind of deciding whether or not we want to buy your product or build our own product. And the salesperson realizes that he's talking to the director of technology. So mm -hmm. the director of IT is, is saying, hey, we're thinking about building this. Now, as a salesperson, you know that the cost of building something yourself is enormous. And you have fought against this type of person all the time. And you, there's probably no way as a salesperson that you're going to convince the director of technology to buy it because <laughs> he fundamentally wants to build it. He wants to hire a new team and play with new toys. And that's just his makeup. So let's say that lead started out as an inbound lead from the website and they downloaded a white paper. Now marketing is playing with them and they're sending them out some sequence of nurture emails. They're sending it out to the director of technology. Now they flip it over to sales. The first sales conversation happens and the, the sales rep is saying, okay, I got a problem here. Um, this guy is not going to uh, allow me to really sell around him on this build versus buy question. Now, marketing doesn't know this. This is a new mm -hmm. sales challenge that marketing doesn't understand. Marketing doesn't have a drip campaign that is built for build versus buy, nor do they have the ability to say, we probably shouldn't send that drip campaign to the director of technology because I'm never going to convince him to buy my thing. He wants to build. So here's what we would do in a sales first uh, marketing automation strategy is I would work with marketing to build a sequence, the build versus buy sequence. But the salesperson through the CRM gets to choose who receives that sequence. Now, again, salesperson mm. doesn't understand 
or a salesperson knows that he's not going to to convert the director of technology, but he might be able to convert the CEO. He might be able to convert the director of marketing or procurement or sales or whatever leadership is making this decision. So what I could do as a salesperson is I could add five or six people into the CRM and I could now select from a drop-down list the build versus buy campaign that marketing has created. But as a salesperson now, I get to choose what campaign is going to which of these individuals. Now, what the what's amazing about this, uh, it's, the, it's the best passive aggressive um, sales and marketing collaboration I can think of. <laughs> Because what's happening is the director of technology is going to walk into a meeting and he's going to say, hey, we should build this. We shouldn't buy it. But what's been happening in the background, sales knew, knows that this is going to happen. So what happened in the background is sales is sending a build versus buy marketing campaign to five other decision makers <laughs> without that director of technology knowing what's going on. And there he is arming all of those other people with this data that says it costs 80% more to build something and how are you going to handle support? He is feeding objections to a whole bunch of other stakeholders in the sales process. So when they do walk into the decision making, all of those other stakeholders are much more well-informed and he's never had to talk to or try and convert that director of technology. That is the way that marketing is handling content and design and sales is handling people and timing. Those two things come together, make for amazing uh, marketing sequences that both teams get to use. Thank you so much for sharing that because literally the thing I wanted to get to next is what are the, what are some specific best practices? Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about sales first marketing and, uh, you know, the, the philosophies and the importance and some of the areas of frustration and some ways that, that people might change their thinking. But when it comes to actually using tools and technologies, that's where this comes to life. So I love that. That's such a simple one. And there are so many more platforms that are now enabling that to happen where, um, you know, marketing can create a sequence, but but sales can actually activate it against a certain um, lead. Are there any other big picture best practices that you're identifying when it comes to actually building out the automation piece of Salesforce marketing automation? Yeah. So the way that I approach this kind of tactically is we put sales and marketing into a room together and sales talks about all of the things that they want to say and all of the objections that they come up with. So they're really helping marketing come up with content strategy. And some of, a lot of mm -hmm. people are doing this already. So this might not be a, a, a revolutionary concept to a lot of people on the podcast, but they're coming up with all of this content. And then marketing goes back. And the way that I talk about this is through the hero's journey. So if you can think of a Lord of the Rings kind of analogy and what marketing does is tries to figure out the best way to tell this story to help overcome an objection. So in the, the example that I gave was build versus buy. Sales is going to have five or six mm -hmm. really common objections. And that's the easiest way to start down this path is to create a short marketing sequence for each of your common objections and let marketing tell a story go back to the hero's journey and this you know the hero's journey kind of starts off like you know frodo leaves the shire and he is called to go on an adventure and then he passes this threshold <laughs> and he goes on this big long journey and then he reaches some critical you know point where he is in a life or death 
opportunity and he succeeds and then he comes home and then he shares all of this wonderful knowledge with, you know, the community that he left. Marketing can be amazing storytellers and put people on this journey to overcome an objection. So figure out what objections you have, figure out what content you already have developed. Marketing may have some of this content already there. Then you do a gap analysis and say, here's the content that we need to develop. And once you know all of the content that you need to develop, what I do is a, uh, an effort versus time kind of analysis to see what's the easiest stuff that I can build uh, from a marketing perspective as quickly as possible. I develop that content first. And then finally, I put a sequence together in my marketing automation platform. And then the last thing I do is I go over into the CRM or whatever outreach or whatever SDR um, platform you might be using. And you put a drop down field in there that says campaign and you allow <laughs> the salesperson to trigger the campaign on a specific prospect. And then marketing has already done their work. Sales is talking to the right people and you just let the two work on their own. Let, you bring them together in the beginning and then they have to be able to separate and just be efficient. Absolutely. And that's such a simple framework. Um, and you're, you're really just allowing everybody to shine where they can shine. And, you know, a lot of systems didn't used to allow um, any any direction from salespeople um, to who was going to get campaigns. And so if you've got a CRM system that isn't built out to allow that, you really need to think about, um, you know, can we make upgrades to the system? Can we, can we change um, the way that we're, that the way that we're using it such that sales is able to do that? Because something else I often hear from salespeople is, you know, I don't want my relationships and, and there's always a possessiveness there, you know, my sure. relationships, my people getting emails that I haven't seen from marketing. And it's like, well, yes and no. I mean, first of all, I, I understand if you're sending custom emails to somebody, it can be a little frustrating when an automated email goes out and you don't know what it was and you feel like it's interrupting the conversation. But buyers are sophisticated enough by now to know that that happens and, and they're not going to be terribly confused by the difference between a marketing email and a personalized email that you get. But, but also um, it is helpful when market, when sales can have some level of control over, you know what, I do want the email to go to that, um, you know, the, the CFO, as opposed to the director of it, who's got, uh, uh, you know, a, an idea that's not going to be all that compelling for us. And so to figure out, you know, what's the level of um, freedom that you give salespeople and finding that healthy middle ground um, is such a powerful uh, just philosophy to take in. And then you, you've got to figure out the specific mechanics of how you're going to actually work that out in your organization. The reason why sales doesn't want marketing to tread on their prospects is because they have no idea what marketing is saying. And it, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a lot of like marketing is coming up with all of these, what they believe as wonderful nurture campaigns. And sometimes they are, I don't want to take anything away from marketing, but what sales needs is they need to know who's getting what and why not work together to figure out this sequence. So sales and marketing are coming together to say, okay, we're going to send, when we have this sales objection, here are the five things that I need to tell, that I would like to tell 
a prospect when they have this objection? Well, marketing goes and writes those five emails. They produce some content. They show it to sales. Sales agrees like, yeah, this is really helpful because these are all of the things that I would usually have to write manual emails for. And I don't have to send Mm -hmm. out all of these attachments that, and I would have to cross my fingers and hope that people are reading my emails and going to the website, doing all of these things, when all they have to do is let marketing build one sequence. And now that sales knows what's going on, again, they're in control of the message and the pro or of the of the prospect and the timing. And everybody's come together when it comes to the messaging. So I it's a it's a hundred percent natural reaction for salespeople to want to own their prospects. They're it's putting money in their pocket, but they if mm-hmm. they can grow to trust marketing and work together, then again, you're right. It it is the best of both worlds and it will only help the organization because in reality, whether salespeople like to to agree to do it or not, but that prospect owns to the owns the uh, is owned by the company and the mm-hmm. company, the the chief revenue officer, whoever is in charge of integrating these two things together should think of it that way. Absolutely. And, you know, leadership level is where the the key responsibility here lies. But, um, you know, just having, having, like you said, the collaboration at the points in the process where you need collaboration, that builds the trust such that you can have an output that you weren't involved in building that you know was built on a foundation of um, alignment. And and that's really all that it takes. It's when you feel like each of these teams is like a black box and they're just throwing things at each other. You don't know where it came from. You don't know why they think that. You don't know, um, you know, what on earth they used to come up with that messaging and, you know, why they think that that message is compelling. And it's, it's mostly just confusion. And, um, you know, the way we react, as you said, it's a lot of it can be justified, but if you ever feel like you're fighting against a department in your organization, it's worth taking a step back because you work for the same team and, you know, you shouldn't be trying to work around or, or, you know, fight against a team. You should figure out why are we not pulling in the same direction and and what can we do to drive that alignment? And and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but what you just mentioned is emotional intelligence. Understanding Mm. that what I really (laughs) want to do is I want to move towards something, not away from something is a fantastic methodology, whether you're working with a, just an individual or another department, if I need to, if I'm moving away from marketing because I don't think that they're doing their job, that is fundamental. I'm moving in the wrong direction. I want to move towards marketing. I want to move towards success. And it's always a yes. One of my teachers says the universe only responds to yes. And if I'm saying no at any point in time, I need to evaluate why I'm saying no. I need to get underneath of where that's coming from. And to your Mm. point, this starts at a leadership level. So I would tell anybody listening to the podcast right now, if you're a sales rep and you like this idea, trying to do this uh, without sales and marketing leadership is going to be really challenging because this mm-hmm. is literally a we are building a bridge between two uh, process areas and two very different systems in some case technology systems and we're going to have to hold hands and walk down this path together and it's going to require some patience and emotional intelligence absolutely that's that's a really great observation because yeah it's it's 
it, 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 you know, the reason that I talked about self-awareness before we, before we started here and the reason that I, I recommended that ebook is so much of this is dependent on self-awareness. Um, it's really easy to just get caught up in a feeling and caught up in an approach to how you engage with and relate to your colleagues and your organization. Um, you know, that us versus them mindset. It should be us, our organization versus our competitors, um, not us versus the other team inside our organization. And if you can, um, can take that step back and think about, you know, how would it feel if you felt like everybody at your organization were working together in the same direction um, with the same vision, leveraging everybody's skills really effectively to achieve the same goal? That's such an empowering concept that, um, that, you know, why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? And um, you have to really have that observation that you're not that way in order to, you know, you have to, the first step is admitting you have a problem, I suppose. <laughs> so you, you brought up a, a phrase that is really critical and whether you knew it or not, but this idea of being caught up in a feeling, um, mm-hmm. that, that being caught up in a feeling is the, the very middle step in a process that we all go through. Um, so that the feeling part is actually driven by a thought. Mm-hmm. So the thought is uh, driven by some circumstance. So I uh, walk into work one day and uh, someone says something to me that, you know, in one respect could be very benign, but because I had a bad day or because something my car broke down, my, I had a flat tire, because of that, I have taken this really benign conversation and I have created it into something new. I have added all of this extra baggage to it. So that original conversation now turns into what I refer to as kind of the circumstances that we're dealing with. It's not fact anymore. Mm. It is the Mm -hmm. circumstances that we're dealing with. Those circumstances then cause me to actually have a thought and that thought then causes me to feel emotions. So I have a thought. Now I'm feeling emotions. Now I'm angry. Now why I'm angry could be based on a whole bunch of different things, but that anger then causes hormones to get released in my body. So Mm -hmm. in that case, I'm, it's like adrenaline and cortisol get released in my body. And those hormones are now changing what I actually do. My, it's changing my action, my inaction, my reaction, my lack of action. So (laughs) the emotion that you just said, I'm caught up in emotion. We have to realize that there were two things, sometimes lots more things, but at least two things that happened Mm -hmm. for me to be caught up in that emotion. And sometimes it's a lot of history that gets me to that emotional state, but that emotional state then changes all of my behavior. So if I can go all the way back, find the thought that caused this and then approach it in a much more neutral way, it makes it a Mm -hmm. lot easier for me to get work done in my office. Absolutely. I love that you went there and that wasn't necessarily something that we had, we had thought about, um, as we were preparing for this conversation, but that brought to mind a story about uh, a client that I worked on. This was years ago at this point, and they felt that their inside sales team was dysfunctional and they weren't sure why. Right. And so we came in to help analyze, basically we were told, you know, figure out what's wrong with inside sales. And that wasn't the mindset we tried to take, but we wanted to understand why were they not effective? 
in that organization. And through interviews with the team, through evaluating how they worked with other departments, what we realized is they were coming from a context of feeling abused and disempowered by the rest of the organization. They didn't feel valued. They were treated by the external sales team as basically assistants, even though their job was inside sales. It was not sales assistant. And so everything that they did and how they how they perceived everything that they heard was through a lens of, you don't like me, you don't respect me, you're condescending to me. And so you could say the same thing to somebody not in that context, and it would be just be perceived as like a normal statement, as you said. And to them, they'd hear it and perceive it as an attack. And so leadership was saying, we're not attacking, we're not... But that they didn't understand was that context that had been coming, that had been building, like you said, over time for years. And so you could have a brand new hire and they come in and the message they get from everybody on the team is the sales team treats us like garbage. They think we're the, their assistants. We're not. We've got to fight back. We've got to stand up to them. Uh, and it, it built up over time and only through kind of discovering what that context was and then coming together at a leadership level to think about how do we break down those barriers? How do we get people to understand that they're part of a team? How do we get sometimes the outside salespeople not to treat them like assistants? Um, but but if you ignore that context, you're, you're looking at these independent behaviors, you know, why are they communicating in that way? Why are they pushing back so hard on this and not realizing that it's coming from a place that's, you know, there, there's some validity there, but there's also a lot that's built up um, that's impacting the way, the way things come out. And we can see it in our own behavior. You know, you had a bad morning, you had a, a you know, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed or you overslept and then you, you didn't have a great conversation with whoever you live with. And then you go to work and you're, you're not your best self. And so we can see it in ourselves just, you know, on a, on a short-term basis. And sometimes I think we don't look at the longer term situations that are impacting how we're behaving right now. So I, I want to offer up two things. First of all, now you understand that story alone illustrates the reason why I break up my day 80% operational, 20% self-care. Because what you just talked about is absolutely a, le- a lesson in emotional intelligence. And the the other thing, one, one of my favorite authors um, uh, is Brene Brown. And Brene, in one of her programs, um, shares a quote that says... Um, Shame only has to rise to a certain level before people begin to shut down to self-protect. And what I heard in your statement was sales treats inside sales poorly. Inside sales is now fed up and they don't want to be treated as assistants. That is, it's probably not a shame trigger, but it is, it's bordering on some of that. Like you're making me feel less than. So now inside sales says, you know what? They don't like me. I don't like them either. So now I have shut down emotionally to self-protect, to maintain my dignity. And that is the reason why emotional intelligence is so important in the workplace. I talked to to C-suite that says, I'm not supposed to be a psychologist. I don't care how my people feel. Well, you clearly should care because you are now having to call in a consulting company to be an interventionalist because <laughs> you you have not prevented something from happening. If you become a preventionalist, you don't have to become an interventionalist or you don't have to hire somebody to become an interventionalist. And that is 
about knowing yourself. That's about knowing your uh, your employees at a much deeper level than what the CRM or the marketing automation platform is going to tell you based on conversion rate. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I did want to pivot because we're, we're probably kind of a little past maybe that 80%. So for for the last kind of 20%, um, I think you've already talked a little bit about why it is so important for leaders to focus on self-care. But what are, you know, and it's not just self-care, as you were saying, it's, it's understanding the the importance of self and the importance of a whole life focus for your employees as well as yourself. Um, what are some of the, the big principles that you've observed over time um, that you share with clients when you're, when you're talking about that principle of self-care? Well, it all starts with the self. I can't control mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, if I can just take care of myself and if I can be a better human being, a more compassionate human being, a more compassionate, emotionally intelligent leader, then my employees or my team or who, however you want to structure that conversation, my colleagues have an opportunity to also be better, more in, emotionally intelligent people. Um, There is a fantastic author and researcher out of Yale. His name is Mark Brackett. Um, He runs runs an organization, I think, called the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And he says there, there are five areas that when we have higher emotional intelligence, these five areas, um, get better. And one of, one of them is intentional, attentional capacity. So having the ability to focus on and to achieve more, our uh, decision-making ability gets better. Um, our relationships in and out of work get better. Our physical and mental health get better and performance and creativity get better. So who wouldn't want a, a higher performing, more creative team? And the reality is if I'm a leader who knows myself well enough and knows my emotions. There are times when I'm like, okay, we shouldn't have this meeting right now because I'm not an emotionally available place Uh to go down and have this conversation. So let's just put a pin in this and let's do it tomorrow. Or let's imagine um, you're you're a supervisor giving uh, a review or feedback to one of your employees and you're giving them constructive criticism. You're, let's say you're very emotionally intelligent and you are giving valid constructional, um, constructive criticism to one of your employees, but that employee is not emotionally intelligent. They're super offended and they don't know how to deal with that constructive criticism. Now they feel like they've done something wrong and shame and all of these other things. And that's the reason why we want to increase the emotional intelligence and the self-care for everybody. And as a leader, if I tell people, and I tell people almost on, on every consulting session that I do, I have no problem telling people that I am a big advocate for therapy and getting help wherever that is, whether it's a therapist or a coach. And because I take the shame away from that as a leader, now I give my employees the opportunity to go and use their medical benefits to get help as an employee as well. So some of this is just removing some of the stigma around self-care. And I think of going to the therapist as uh, just like people go to the gym to make their muscles strong. I go to the therapist to make my brain strong and to make my emotions strong. There are, there is no negative stigma for me whatsoever. It's just, um, it's just my self-care practice. Absolutely. Um, there, there's so much there, but that whole concept of 
leaders needing to model these behaviors and make them acceptable. Uh, that's incredibly powerful. That's something I try to do in my team. You know, um, I'm, it, it, I, visit a therapist and well, now I talk to my therapist over video conference, but um, I mention it in meetings with the team because I think it's important for junior employees to hear senior employees talk about things like that. And it's it's so simple, but we are socialized to feel a sense of shame around, um, around any challenges that people might experience around any um, mental or emotional um, you know, situations that people might be in. And so to just open up about that, uh, to let yourself be vulnerable, to try to shut down, you know, I love that you mentioned Brene Brown earlier. I'm I'm such a huge fan of hers. I just literally recorded a podcast earlier today um, uh, about uh, a quote that she has. And, um, you know, the the shame shuts us down and we're never our best selves when we're coming from a place of a place of shame. Um, So that modeling that leaders can do, but also what you said, that, that sense of taking the pulse of a situation before you move forward with something. Um, Something we always teach people is you need to get somebody's permission to coach them before you start coaching. We actually have an entire coaching model, the acronyms, playback, but um, the P is <laughs> get permission to coach. It's the very first step because so often people think I'm just going to come in and coach you. And that's, how could that be anything but helpful? I, I want to help you. I'm, you know, I'm an intelligent person. I have, I have wisdom. I had advice. I want to give it to you. I want to be a resource for you. Um, why would you say no to that? And yet people say no to that. <laughs> and people, you know, they sit there with their arms crossed in the middle of a coaching session. You're wondering why they're, why they're acting that way. The first thing that we like to say is, you know, is it, it is now a good time to give you some coaching? Are you open to some coaching on that? And just check with people. You know, you can you can sometimes just take the, the, the pulse of a room or you can evaluate your own feelings and whether, you know, you feel ready for a conversation. But but also just affirmatively checking in with people on whether they're open to whatever, um, you know, conversation you want to have with them can be such a simple practice, but really important. If somebody says, no, I'm not open to coaching right now, you're, you're, you know, eliminating a potentially very unproductive conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So what, what you just explained is um, what happens in those situations. Really it's, there's some codependence in there. Like I'm just going to coach you now because I'm smart and I know more than you. And Uh (laughs) what happens is um, there is a a framework called the, the Cartman drama triangle. And um, it, it has, it's a triangle with three points. And uh, the one is the rescuer. Um, and then the rescuer becomes the victim and then the victim Mm -hmm. becomes the persecutor. And so, (laughs) so what ends up happening is we get, we give coaching and then that coaching doesn't get accepted. And we're like, well, why didn't you take my advice? Now I'm the victim. And then you become the persecutor and say, well, now I'm going to actually coach you in the right way. And then I become the persecutor. (laughs) And that is a, it is a very common, I mean, it's, there's a whole, um, philosophy around it. So it's very, very common. Um, You know, you you also mentioned something about recognizing how I'm feeling or recognizing, you know, what's happening in the moment. And that's really where I do say the word mindfulness. Mindfulness is the shortcut for me. Um, And it's a loaded term as well. There's a lot of people that are talking about mindfulness in lots of different ways. But I also like to swap out the term non-judgmental awareness. And Mm. for me, meditation has given me many, many gifts around this idea that um, if I think of myself as an explosive, as a bomb, and I have a fuse that is, you know, five inches long, but 
if I meditate, my fuse grows to maybe 10 inches long. And each one of those inches equates to a second in real life. So if somebody mm-hmm. does something to me, that, and if I haven't been meditating, if I haven't been practicing what I preach, my fuse might be five inches long. Therefore, I now have five seconds to try and interrupt between what happened to me, what was said to me, and my action. And sometimes I can't catch that in five seconds, and I get angry, or I get uh, fearful, or whatever that is. And for me, um, my meditation practice gives me an extra five seconds where I say, oh, yeah, there's a feeling there. Um, I can feel bad about that feeling, or I don't have to feel anything about that feeling. And maybe I don't even, maybe I can be angry, but I don't have to act out my anger. I can be angry in a situation, but I don't have to yell at someone or pound my fist on the table. Those are two different things. The feeling and the action are two very, very different things. And that's what this software field manual, and that's why I talk about self-care um, because what I want to do is give people an extra five seconds. And I want people to be happy doing what they're doing. And I think that it takes some research and some action to figure out what makes us happy. Because most of the time when we start a company, what we thought was going to make us happy doesn't really make us happy in the end. Absolutely. I, I really love I love that you um, are bringing in kind of the science and the data. Um, and I, I have uh, a lot of this, I, I've kind of tried to figure out over time. And, and some of it can be relatively intuitive, especially if you're um, at least somewhat reflective. But um, understanding why that is the case is is so incredibly powerful. And, you know, when you were talking about the fuse, I love that analogy. It's, it's kind of like, you know, there's a speeding car. And um, if a car hits you, and it's going, you know, 15 miles an hour, you're going to be fine. And it's not going to take a whole lot of time for that car to stop. But if the car's going 60 miles an hour, um, it takes a long time to stop. And, and there's going to be some some difficulty in that process. And so just thinking about, you know, speed in any situation is not usually going to be uh, a source of the best ideas, the best communication. Um, We're not generally our best selves when we're caught off guard and we're trying to rush. Um, And so anytime you can insert um, more thought, more time, more pausing, and allow that to allow that to happen, just give, give, some space and some breathing room, um, we can all be our better selves uh, if, if we can create those spaces for that. And it's, it's you know, um, I just actually, uh, I think it was last week's episode. I'm trying to think of, of when podcast episodes aired, but um, was talking to Amy K. Hutchins and she is an expert in communication. She just, just had a book that, that came out on that. And that's one of the key um, things that we talked about is, you know, you can, you can pause. If somebody asks you a question and your immediate response to that question is a, a really negative emotional reaction, to not say that and instead say, oh, that's an interesting question. Can you tell me why you asked that? Or can you tell me more about what you're looking for here? And just giving yourself space before you respond um, to to process things. you know. And, and as you said, if you have some sort of a, a meditation practice or, or something that's going to um, help you to, to, you know, have that more time and space to, to give you, um, you know, that, um, to think before you, before you say something, um, that's really important, uh, because it's that lashing back that you always regret it. 
you know, sometimes five minutes later, sometimes an hour later, but it's, it's, it's usually something that you did very quickly and said very quickly. And then you think, man, with, with just a few more seconds, I could have come up with something a whole lot better to say. (laughs) I, your, your natural sense that you said, you know, I've, uh, I've kind of felt these things and I'm I'm somewhat intuitive or self-aware and I kind of understand these things. Well, um, a friend of mine likes to say, we don't read books to learn things. We read books to ensure that we're not crazy. Because <laughs> what happens is, is we, we read something and we're like, oh, so other people feel this way. Or, oh, so this is the you know scientific methodology or model for approaching this feeling. And you know if, if you're listening to the podcast right now and you're saying, I don't want to meditate. I've tried meditating. I don't like that at all. But I still want this five extra five seconds that you talked about. You know what? Try a different route. Try hypnosis. Try cognitive behavioral therapy. There are a lot. All roads lead to Rome. And if you are going going down the path of self-awareness and and trying to just be a better human there are enormous ways countless ways to begin developing some of these techniques into your life and if meditation isn't your thing i'm not going to tell you to do it like do whatever makes you feel good and as long as it's helping as long as it's helping you and it's not hurting you or someone else i say go for it Absolutely. Um, so speaking of books, you just touched on that. Um, do you have any books that you would recommend to our listeners, either on that kind of more operational side that we were talking about or on more the self-care side? You know, I'll, I'll go down the self-care side. I think that anybody can read uh, lots of books on content marketing and, and sales processes. And you probably mm-hmm. have lots smarter podcast guests around those things than me. So I'm not even going to... Uh, try and trump them. I would say on the self-care side, um, one of the life-changing texts or not, it's really not even a text. It's about six and a half hour audio book. It's called the power of vulnerability um, teaching about authenticity, connection, and courage. So um, Brene had written a couple of books and then she did a workshop in front of a live audience. And she, it was about two days long and she went through an enormous amount of her content and it is life changing for me. I listen to it two or three times a year. Whenever something's going on in my life, I will put on that audiobook and I will listen to that and be like, Oh, that's where I'm at in the process. It gives me context. Um, Outside of that, you know, um, Byron Katie's work is amazing. Loving What Is is a really fantastic book. Um, another life-changing book for me, um, one was called The Four Agreements um, by Don Miguel Ruiz. Um, so those are just a few of the books um, that I would recommend um, from a business perspective, like from a creativity perspective, um, I love Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, I also love The Go-Giver. Um, I think The Go-Giver uh, from Bob Berg and John David Mann sets up a really fantastic model to kind of live life. Um, if you want more books or want to look at some of um, the content that we talked about today, both from uh, the Sales First Marketing Automation Um, or on self-care and kind of my toolbox and a whole bunch of books, you can go to gvfreeman.com. And I have a self-care toolkit. And I also have a full um, presentation that I did on sales first marketing automation. You can watch the video of me presenting it and you can also download the slides. So all of that stuff is available at no charge. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, GV. Um, I love the, the book recommendations that you have and resource recommendations, but there is so much available on your website. I would highly recommend that, um, that our listeners check that out. Is there anywhere else that you would recommend that people would go to learn more about you and your work? So I think gvfreeman.com is the place to start. If you are a founder or you want to start a tech company uh, and you are looking for either curriculum, kind of a path to do that, um, or somebody on the coaching side, or frankly, if you're a leader and you are looking for somebody who understands both the business and the self-care side and you would like to approach coaching, um, gvfreeman.com or also Product Founders Journey. Com is the curriculum that I built. Um, there is an online course and, and coaching available there. Um, and uh, honestly, the, the softwarefieldmanual.org is my nonprofit. So I'm really trying to um, push this type of self-care content into the, the founder technology world um, through a nonprofit. And what I'm trying to do is in that effort is to help minorities. Um, I try and help women and I try and help rural founders. So really underserved communities in technology coming, growing up as a kid in a town of 700 people. If I wanted to start a technology company, I would have had no idea and no resources to be able to do that. So I'm really trying to help um, those people the most. Absolutely. That's, that's really wonderful. And I can, you know, as somebody from a small town in the Midwest, I can definitely second that. Uh, the, the idea was if you want to do anything big, you get out of town, not stay here. So um, that's, that's amazing. All right. Thank you so, so much for speaking with me today, GB. I feel like we could have probably stayed um, on this recording for another hour or so, but I'm sure our listeners probably want to move to something next. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. And if you uh, have been listening this long, thanks for hanging with us. And if you uh, have any other questions, please feel free to reach out. This is absolutely my favorite thing to do. Teaching is a part of what in the in the yogic world we would call my swadharma. It's really the, the reason why I was put on this planet. And I love nothing more than having conversations like this. It um, truly like fills my heart and gives me great gratitude. And I thank you for giving me an opportunity to, to share some of that with your listeners. Absolutely. That really comes out. You're an excellent teacher and communicator. Um, and I do as GV was just saying, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into today's show and making it to this part. Um, you can find the notes and resources for everything we've been talking about today, including links to those websites that GV was mentioning at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 254. Be sure to tune in on Friday for another inspirational episode. And remember to check out my presentation at the International Institute for Learning's Leadership and Innovation Online Conference, which is available until June 7th. You can use the code FREDERIC, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K, for $10 off your registration. Don't forget to check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com insights. I really hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please recommend us to a friend. That'll help more people discover the show. And if you're not yet subscribed, make sure to do that so you'll hear every new episode as soon as it gets posted. You can subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. We are always committed to learning and improving, and we would love your feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts, or email us with direct feedback, questions, and guest suggestions at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, Mark Krogan, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!